Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent and uh, true to our roots, finally we have some company and uh, fellow fans and friends joining us. Uh, Anand, you want to do the introductions here? Yes, uh, so we have uh, Usman here uh, who is uh, a USTA rated tennis player uh, who's been, uh, been very active on our uh, private discussion forums and very knowledgeable about, about the sport. Uh, he was Roger Federer fan. I think, Osman, you started off as a Nadal fan, and uh, now you've become a Roger fan as well. And um, and also very uh, very skilled and knowledgeable about the sport itself, so he'll be sharing some of his perspectives. And then we also have Vinny, uh, who also uh, has played a lot of tennis, and uh, in fact, he... Uh, he was coached by, in the in the Bhupati camp in uh, in India, and he's played against some of uh, the top uh, players, at least from India. Uh, and uh, so, Vinny also will be sharing a lot of his perspective. He has actually visited uh, uh, the Indian Wells recently, so he watched uh, the match uh, between Roger and Rafa. So he'll be giving us a download on what what he saw. Uh, so, Vinny and Usman, welcome to the show, and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Thanks, Anand. Happy to be on this show. Uh, I feel like one day when this, you know, goes super viral, I'll, I'll be happy to have gotten in on the on the ground for <laughs> one episode. Yeah, so. it took us it took us twenty episodes for us to get you here. <laughs> we, we got even Peter Corda and uh, Johan Creek before we got you guys. So. <laughs> yeah, that was quite an introduction, and uh, yeah, happy to be here. Been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, this podcast is finally, I mean, uh, even geographically, this is interesting. Uh, Usman is calling from Philadelphia and Winnie is in California. So we have, uh, you know, a couple of time zones covered here. So let's get started. I mean, uh, everyone, you know, we, we we have to take our federal mask off. We are all like, <coughs> but just for the audience, let's uh, get all the biases out. So I'll start with Anand. I mean, uh, you know, three wins, first time in the rivalry. Uh, how much of you uh, credit this to the racket or of declining Nadal or just a newfound confidence in Federer? There's all kinds of factors, I think, that that, that, that are happening, but I don't want to focus on one thing here. Uh, first off, let's just say this is a whole new phase of his career. It happens to coincide with what I would think is a whole new phase of Nadal's career as well. Um, I almost want to think of the rivalry in, in, in different segments. This just happens to be one where Roger is dominating uh, the two of them. And yeah, there are many reasons why that's happening. But I don't want to take anything away from the fact that Nadal was the one who dominated the rivalry early on. Um, so well, let me let me push this out to Vinny and Usman and uh, and see what you guys have to say. Usman, maybe uh, you can go first. Yeah, definitely. So I think a couple of things. Uh, I've been following their matches since uh, 2004. When was when they when, that was the first time that they played, and. Um, so uh, for most of the matches, I thought that uh, Federer's backhand was uh, a big issue against Nadal, obviously. And if you guys have read uh, Rafa's uh, autobiography, which came out in 2009, I think, uh, as far as he was concerned, his uh, game plan against Federer was pretty much the same every time. And he was pretty open about it, that he would always serve to his backhand. 
and uh, he would never serve to his forehand and then he would continue uh, focusing on the backhand uh, till he would win the point. And uh, for Federer, the biggest issue was that since he was playing with a 90-inch frame, um, he couldn't really uh, control the ball as well as he would have liked to. That sort of brought in the defensive mindset through through the match as he was losing points and he was shanking the ball all all over the place. uh, And uh, that basically sort of affected his... uh, a game plan, which was not so much the case with many other players. And uh, I think it was sort of uh, a, a mindset in general as well, because he was winning all his other matches uh, against other players and he was losing against Rafa only. So winning uh, three Grand Slams every year was okay for him uh, at that point in time. But right now with the new racket and everything, uh, he he's found that confidence against Rafa and uh, he's found that confidence in his backhand as well. So uh, that's resulted in uh, him playing much better against him, and uh, and that's resulted in his wins. And uh, I strongly believe that if he had uh, changed his racket back in uh, 2011 or so, uh, this would have happened a lot earlier than uh, it has uh, now. Okay, so Usman, you say it's the new racket, Vinny. Do you do you feel it's the new racket, or is it the new Rafa who's not playing as well? Yeah, so I mean, so if I were to look at the other side of this equation, um, you know, for for me, what I noticed uh, through most of their rivalry was that even when Feder, you know, looked like he was getting positive starts right out of the gate, I think a couple of times in the French, once he had a, a first set lead, and another time, you know. He, 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 I think he had a, he was at a set all, and, uh, and in these moments, just a few differences in the pattern of play can lead to like large psychological differences later on, and I I think that's really what we're seeing is that Nadal is in some kind of like state of shock right now with with what's you know with what's been transpired the last three matches, and you know he looked. At times, at, at the Indian Wells Open, he looked just frozen on the court. Like, he wasn't even attempting to get to some of these balls that Federer was hitting. And uh, and I I attribute a, a lot of this to um, just his, you know, secular decline against all kinds of players, not just, not just Roger. Yeah, so this is interesting. So, you mentioned Nadal's decline against all players, but since he got this new racket, he hasn't lost to Andy Murray. He hasn't lost to Wawrinka. He hasn't lost to Tomas Burdick. The only guy, in fact, who he's lost to consistently has been Djokovic. No, he lost to Wawrinka with the same racket. That was in the very early stages and it was on clay, right? Uh, but he's, he's crushed him pretty much since then. Uh, well, they did have a close match, but it's, it's been a one-sided rivalry against all of the other players except Djokovic, who arguably was playing at a much higher level. Um, yeah, but, so, but what about his Grand Slam performance... Up to about Wimbledon of last year, right? The, the, the two years prior to that, uh, I think he didn't get past the third or fourth round in, in the Grand Slam. Uh, it had been a it had been a while. You're you're talking of Rafa here, uh, yes. yes. No, I was talking of Roger. The fact that he. Oh, sorry. Okay. So my point is, as much as Rafa has declined, we're actually seeing a huge surge in Roger's level because of the racket. Uh, to Usman's point. Uh, so the question is, would that have neutralized even the older Rafa, right? The, the one at his peak. 
I think I think the biggest difference as far as the rocket is concerned, and this goes back a little bit to the rocket technology and all all that stuff that we've talked about uh, several times before. Uh, with with the ninety inch uh, ninety inch frame, uh, the biggest issue was that Federer wasn't really able to take advantage of the uh, evolution of uh, the rocket technology and the evolution of the strings and all of that stuff. And the biggest impact I think that that has had on tennis has been uh, the defense of players. And if you look at players like Djokovic or Rafa or even Murray, they're able to retrieve balls uh, which are basically gone and dead from every corner of the court. And they're able to do this without having the best techniques in those strokes at those points in times. But with a 90-inch frame, it's really, really hard to do because you're shanking the ball all over the place and you have to time the ball perfectly and you have to middle it in order to hit those shots. And Federer really wasn't able to play those defensive shots very well against Rafa before and even against the other players. But now you can see that he's able to retrieve the ball from all over the place and he's able to put the ball back in play from really out of position uh, 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 sh- uh, places as well. So I think that's been the biggest uh, change in the last couple of years since he went to this bigger frame. I think it's a very valid point. But at the same time, I think all of us may not be overlooking, but uh, the six-month break in this case was very vital. One, what everyone's saying, you know, he hit the reset button and uh, he came in fresh in Australia. There was no lingering effects of losing three of the last four matches with Djokovic losing three in a row to Nadal, which you know, used to be the case when he was on tour. And second, I personally think uh, this six-month break also gave him perspective. You know, like, he probably knew that he will get back, but there's always this fear that he's been saying in the interviews, that what happened if he never came back? But I think that kind of gives you, like, a certain appreciation of what he was going through. And once you go back on tour, I think his mind was much clearer. It's now or never kind. I think that's the feeling we all got in Australia. And before the match, he said, I'm going to lay it all here, even if I don't walk for the next few months. So being down 3-0, the new racket, he still had to actually go do it. You know, he had the racket and, you know, the belief. And and the belief is a big word because after winning in Australia, he knew he can beat Nadal. And then yesterday or the day before was a classic case when he let everything flow. He doesn't care if he loses at Indian Wells. And then you could see how with this new racket, he's coming over the backhand and Nadal, you know, didn't have a solution. So it's interesting. So I, I'm going to ask this to uh, Vinny here. Uh, so 2009, these two guys played the Australian Open final. They played five sets. So it wasn't like Nadal was crushing Roger, the old Roger with the old racket. So it's still a close match, right? But the difference there was Nadal mentally, I think he wore him down and he won that match. Great point. Right? And now you look back, now you look at, back at this year's Australian Open same exact situation. They're in the fifth set. Nadal's up 3-0. So I don't think Roger was completely outplaying Rafa, even even with the new racket and the new backhand. Right? He was very competitive, but he was still down. But something changed here. Right? My question is: Is it all racket, or is it is it really the mental sorry. shift that that Sakib's talking about? I think it's both. Uh, sorry, guys. I'll just you know I'll dive in one more time. <laughs> I think it's both. Anand makes a very good point. Because Nadal knows, right? It's, it's a matchup, right? It's a tale of two cities. Nadal has known in the past, like Federer has come out super aggressive, like say 2012 semis till the Australia Day fireworks came and, you know, the match trajectory changes. So he knows, even when he's not playing his best, he has a game plan that has worked against Roger and he'll beat Roger. And Roger, on the other hand, you know, may never admit. He knows 
we've come out aggressive, you know, tried different things. In the end, the result has been the same. So that's a very valid point. That's why I think the Australian Open match was very close. They both didn't play their best tennis in the late fifth set together. When Federer was on fire, Nadal was not playing well. And when Nadal started playing well, Federer shanked few balls and, you know, we went to the fifth set. And that's why I think the mentality is key. After getting through that fight, I think that's going to set the tone for whatever is left. But I'll admit, even though I'm not a big Nadal fan, that this Nadal doesn't move like the Nadal of all. He's not even close. Did you see that, Vinny, when, when you watched them play? Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, I think, I think you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do these counterfactuals where we say, okay, if, if Federer had this racket back then, he would have, um, you know, he would have beaten uh, Nadal. Um, <laughs> and, and the reason is, I mean, you look back at some of those matches and a lot of what this was in, in, in long rallies, uh, Nadal seemed to have that mental edge to, you know, to finish, to outlast Federer. And, and I think, I mean, as great as, you know, as Federer's attacking game is, it's Nadal's de- defense that really defined, you know, those matches. I mean, at the end of a really long rally, he was able to come out with a winner uh, or, or push Federer onto the defensive. And, or a Federer and, yeah, or a Federer error, exactly. And so, I, I, I think it's. I, I think we have to be careful in in, in in our assessment here because you know Nadal, Nadal not being able to cover the court the same way is is playing into Federer's attacking style and confidence now. Um, but yeah, but when so when I say that uh, if Federer had the racket uh, back in two thousand ten or eleven. My point is that their rivalry would have been more balanced. As far as I'm concerned, before these three matches, their rivalry wasn't really a rivalry at all. It was too lopsided. And most of the matches that Federer did win, uh, most of them had some reason behind it, with Rafa having won like four tournaments in a row on clay and then Federer beating him in Madrid or something like that. Or Hamburg, I remember he beat him a couple of times. And uh, with with the two, even with the 2007 Wimbledon final, uh, Rafa pretty much dominated a lot of that match. Um, so it wasn't that that rivalry wasn't really there before these three matches. And my only point is that uh, had he been playing with a larger frame and getting that easy power on the backhand, and then having that ex, uh, that extra defensive ability with the racket their rivalry would have been more balanced uh, instead of the, what, 23, uh, 12 or 13 uh, head-to-head that they have right now. Okay, so let me ask you a little bit, of, I mean, about that frame because, he, you know, he had the 90-square-inch frame for most of his, you know, career. And there's probably, you know, he, he said that his back, I mean, his forehand as well as his backhand slice was better with the 90-inch frame. Right. And um, and so I, I think there is a trade off to, to these rackets. And I think as he gets older, maybe the power he needs that a little boost of power more. Um, but I but I think there was definitely I mean, that that using that 90 inch frame was probably what made him so unique as well. And he's the yeah, only player who's able to play with it ever. Uh, let me throw one more dimension. I know we're agreeing that Rafa is not the same guy. Let's also agree that Federer, even though he's reinvented himself a few times and is very relevant, he doesn't move like he used to on his forehand side when stretched. 
So that's, I think, where the, the bigger frame helps him to get that extra reach, extra power, because Anand makes a great point. Before this uh, racket, Thomas Burdick was giving him fits, you know, in some big matches. And since he got this uh, frame at the beginning of 2014, he's owned Burdick. It's not even Nadal. So I think the racket is very relevant because the trade-off was Federer's movement. Again, world-class movement still, but I think it was slightly compromised. And compared to Djokovic, Nadal and Murray, it wasn't as good, especially on the run. Thoughts? I think his uh, his his game style has changed a little bit also since he moved to the larger a larger frame with the 90 uh, inch frame and especially on his forehand side he was able to uh, get uh, get more acute angles on his shots and was able to go more for the lines and all that stuff and uh, if you guys notice with his game over the last two or three years he's uh, it's gotten more similar to the likes of Djokovic and Murray who are playing well within the lines and maybe not always going for uh, a shots that are very close to the line and uh, and going for those longer rallies and going for those defensive shots and all of that stuff. If you look at Federer's matches uh, back in 2005, 6 or 7, uh, he used to hit a ton of winners uh, with his short angles and uh, 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 down the line and all that stuff. So I think it's changed a little bit from that point of view as well. What about the, the, I guess, going back to serve and volley? Do you, you guys feel like that's that's making an impact as well, um, both in terms of his ability to last uh, five sets and, and also in his effectiveness against guys who are not used to playing the style? Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think with, you know, with, with his age as a factor and his movement having slowed, this, you know, this was, this was I think, the big contribution of Stefan Edberg uh, to Roger's game was was getting him to uh, come to net more often, and he looks to be you know trying to finish the points much more quickly in the last uh, I'd say two three years since uh, moving to Edberg as a coach, and that um, and I think that's you know that's a that's a successful I mean that's his best strategy right now uh, at this point in his career, but I but I I'm not so sure that. Um, you know that strategy was would have been the you know coming serve and volley as well as you know having the bigger frame. I'm not so sure that that would have been the most successful strategy early on. Uh, otherwise, I think there's a good chance he would have switched back then. All right. So th- this is good discussion. So let let me just uh, throw one question and then we'll move to the next topic, which is you had to give uh, credit to Rogers improved game and racket versus Nadal's decline. So I'll say it was, uh, for me, it's it's really uh, maybe a 50-50 thing. It's it's 50% is that Rogers' game has, has improved um, and, and the racket's playing a role. But there's a huge 50%, I think, is Rafa, um, Rafa contributing to this uh, rivalry as well. Uh, what about you guys, if you had to make a quick opinion on that? And sorry, can I just add, I, I like... Uh, also, Usman's opinion on this too, because he, you know, was a more of a Nadal fan earlier. Um, I mean, have have been has new racket technology and possibly strings as well helped uh, people to absorb Nadal's topspin? I think that that's something to add to this discussion too, because it seems like his topspin has become a little less penetrating or effective. 
I think Federer is now more at par with everybody else, and uh, he wasn't really when he was playing with a smaller racket frame. I mean, it really goes to show that he was probably the only player on tour who was playing with a 19-inch frame in the last 10 years. I can't think of anybody else who was playing with that racket, and uh, that really goes to show uh, that there must have been some disadvantage to it. And uh, sure, he had a better slice and maybe a more potent backhand, uh, sorry, beforehand. But but then the disadvantage on the backhand side was huge. But I don't think he cared so much uh, till 2013 when he lost all those matches and then lost in the fourth round of uh, of the U.S. Open to Tommy Robredo. And uh, I think that's when he realized that he really needs to make a switch. Because before that, he'd won Wimbledon in 2012, and then he made the major finals in 2011, and then in 2010, he'd won a major as well. So I don't think there was that urgency over there. But in uh, in 2013, uh, when he lost all those matches, then the urgency sort of, sort of crept in, and then he knew that he made needed to make that change if he had to prolong his career. Hey, it's a great point, Usman. I remember uh, listening to uh, commentary, I think, for Australian Open uh, Live, while driving, and Nick Lester made this very point, what what pretty much you were saying. He said he was in a restaurant uh, player's lounge, and there were only two other people there. That was Paul Anacon and uh, Roger Federer. That's before the 2013 Cincinnati quarterfinal against Rafael Nadal. And these guys were, you know, he said he couldn't help eavesdropping, but, you know, these guys were discussing some last-minute strategy. And, and what he said, uh, what he took away from that uh, conversation was, that at that level, a guy like Federer, you know, he's so strong-headed. Whatever Anacon threw at him, Federer kind of challenged, like by saying it hasn't worked or this would happen. So the racket discussion that brings to the point has been there. Like people like Brad Gilbert have been saying since 2000, <coughs> but it took a while for someone of Federer's, you know, uh, you know, caliber to actually believe to switch to new racket. So yeah, we can all discuss, but I think it was on the cards. But it took him a long time, like you said, the Tommy Robredo or. Sakovsky loss at Wimbledon. That's when this, this, you know, came to like a reality that he's going to switch a racket. Right, but, but, but I want to step in here that the, it's not like his backhand changed overnight. It's not like he got the new racket and and you know this is he got he he's been using this racket for what two years now, three years maybe, and you know it, he's probably this probably gave him an incentive to start fixing his backhand and and letting it rip more. But I, I don't think this is an overnight, I mean, it's not an overnight shift just because he got a new racket. No, absolutely not. But to his credit, he actually did it, uh, unlike someone like Pete Sampras, who never did it throughout his career. And he has admitted to the fact that it eventually hurt him. And he wished that he had moved to a bigger racket frame and he would probably have maybe prolonged his career or gotten him more wins. Right. That's true. Also, before we switch topics, we can uh... I want to say that Federer did have a pretty good backhand even before this racket. It was only a disadvantage against certain players in certain situations. Because let's not uh, discount that his backhand was. Bad. I, I think, in fact, I was going to say that, that you know we were talking about the backhand slice that really helped him out in places like Wimbledon, uh, where I mean he did beat Djokovic uh, before this racket at Wimbledon, uh, and I think the slice was one of his most effective shots on on grass, and he hasn't actually won Wimbledon lately. Uh, so it, it's interesting that he's become a more effective hardcore player. Now the question is, has he become a less effective grass court player as a result? Interesting. Yeah. So, um, Vinny, you were there uh, at Indian Wells. Uh, 
last week. Break uh, break down the match for us. So, how was it? What was the atmosphere? I mean, this is obviously every match uh, between Roger and Rafa now is taking on epic proportions in terms of you know the fan base um, because we're all we're all afraid that we're not going to see many of these anymore. And you got to see it uh, what courtside or were, were you there in the stadium? Where where were you? Um, so right. So what? So last week I first I attended uh, both. Federer and Nadal's uh, practice sessions on the first Saturday and and then the, and then the Wednesday before the match, and it was actually pretty cool because they practiced the Wednesday before the match. They actually practiced right next to each other, so um, there was this incredible atmosphere with you know like the Spanish fans there and uh, all these a lot of people drooling over Nadal and then also the the Federer camp. And I remember actually I. I exchanged seats with a Nadal fan who had a better view of Feder because I heard them speaking Spanish. And I, <laughs> I, I was pretty sure that they wouldn't mind trading seats. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, the, the atmosphere is incredible. I, I, and what I saw was that, you know, the difference in approach to the game was so stark in their practice sessions. I mean, Feder was, you know, relaxed, cool. I mean, he hit for about 20 minutes with, a, I think, a lefty from Canada, Daniel something and uh and but nadal was out there in the in the hot sun you know playing for about an hour and a half um <laughs> just before the match um and uh you know you could see that he you know he was i mean his intensity was really up um i think it felt like and then when we got to the match i mean you know the the crowd was split about 50 50 i'd say i was saying next to a couple of Federer fans and, and, and maybe a few Nadal fans. And, and and you could just see the, you know, when the match started, obviously all us Fed fans were going nuts. And you could just see the the hope draining from the faces of all the Nadal fans, um, at, you know, when they saw what what was, you know, going on out there. Um, yeah, help, it wasn't even close, I guess. Exactly. I mean, uh, I, I think, like I said, I mean, I, I think Nadal, you know, uh, one of the great things about him is, 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 is you know, he's he's the one player in, um, I, I, I would say, in, in almost any sport, maybe along with Michael Jordan, who who has who has the competitiveness to, to, you know, shake off these losses. And at some point, I think he'll go to the drawing board and see, you know, what more he can do. Um and you know he 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 plays every point at 150 percent, and and I think uh, I think once he gets over the shock of this recent stretch, we'll see if there's you know he's still capable of a strong response here. So let uh, me ask Usman this question. I mean, so Rafa is obviously in decline against Roger, but he still did pretty okay at the Australian. He was in the final. Right, uh, absolutely. And uh, if you consider <laughs> consider his. What last year? Uh, what I forget, but what was his uh, uh, longest progress in any any Grand Slam last year? Uh, it probably wasn't that uh, he he lost in all the Grand Slams pretty early, right? Four round at U.S. Open was his best against Luka Puig. Right. So and he reached the final now. So uh, I think I think things are looking for, uh, uh, looking up for him as far as this year is concerned, for sure, considering the fact that. He had an injury layoff as well, and then he was leading three zero in the fifth set. So it would it could have gone anywhere, uh, right? And uh, had he won the next three games, we wouldn't be having the exact opposite conversation right now. 
So yeah. yes, I wouldn't read too much into his uh, his uh, couple of losses that he's had uh, this year. I think his uh, overall his year is looking pretty good if he remains injury free, which is a huge question mark for Rafa, uh, as we all know. And let's not forget the elephant in the room. Novak Djokovic is nowhere close to what he was, so that helps both of these guys. <laughs> I think they were licking their... It's a hard pill for us to acknowledge, but I think let's give, you know, Novak his due. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. If, uh, uh, if Novak was in the mix, then it would have been a different ball game altogether, just because of the fact that playing three uh, final rounds, quarterfinals, semifinals, and then finals against... Uh, Novak and then Murray and then Rafa, that's like a completely different ball game compared to just playing the final against someone like Rafa. And uh, that that helps a lot. This is a perfect segue because, Isman, you called this when Novak won the French Open and everybody thought he was going to win the calendar Grand Slam. Not me. But but he was very much a favorite, let's put it this way, for for, to, to win any slam he entered. You made this really bold prediction. You said you pretty much called him falling off a cliff. I mean, you said he might win maybe a couple more slams in his career, but it seemed it seemed ridiculous at that point. Now here we are. Uh, you know, uh, half a year later, he's lost his number one ranking. He's uh, definitely looking like he's in some kind of a crisis mode. Um, he's lost to Kyrgios twice in two weeks, um, and and your prediction seems to be coming becoming more and more true. So first, tell us what you saw, and do you still hold yourself to what what, what you think um, is happening with him? No, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't it, it wasn't a very difficult prediction to be very honest, because I was just looking at history. If you look at uh, any player besides Roger, who I think has is phenomenal and is in a league of his own, uh, every player who's reached. Uh, this, uh, uh, you know, uh, reached over, what, 10 Grand Slams or so, and is 29-ish or 28, 29 or something like that, that decline inevitably comes. And it, there are many factors that contribute towards it. And it could be age, it could be just a lack of motivation after winning so much and all that. So it, I was really looking at that. And if you look at Roger uh, in 2009 or even 2008, when he was uh, almost, what, 27, 28 years old, uh, things changed even for him. Uh, and uh, and if, if things could change for somebody with, uh, with uh, the playing ability of uh, Federer, then... Uh, I, uh, then it was obvious that uh, it would have happened to Novak as well. I just think that uh, the difference of six Grand Slams uh, between him and Federer, I don't think that's motivation enough for him, at least at this point in time, to continue with the same effort and uh, the same dominance and all of that stuff, which uh, was there when he was still chasing that uh, uh, maybe the calendar Grand Slam or winning all four titles, uh, Grand Slams and all that. I think it's just that he doesn't feel motivated, motivated enough by the uh, by the gap that he has against Federer right now, and that's uh, leading to his somewhat uh, decline at the moment. Yeah, if you look at all of these guys, at some point or the other, we we, we called it. Uh, you know, we, we thought that they were going to do badly. Uh, Roger had a slump in between. Rafa himself has had many slumps. Uh, Andy Murray is going through one right now, and he had one before, uh, you know, when he was injured and, and he came back on tour. 
Uh, it just feels like this is one of those things. I mean, it's really hard to keep up this level for years uh, at a stretch, and uh, Joker will come back um, probably even stronger, which is scary. All right, so let's call it, guys. Uh, how many? Uh, where do you see Novak Djokovic going from here in terms of majors? And uh, we can take stock when you know he wins next and see uh, how we did this uh, on this prediction. So, Winnie, why don't you go first? Um, so, if you're looking at this year, um, I I do see him winning a major this year. Um, I I think it's probably uh, you know either. Either the French or um, uh, Wimbledon. Uh, I would I would see it, uh, you know, a comeback in the earlier part of the year. And uh, if you're looking over his course of his career, I think 15 is still a realistic total for Novak Djokovic. So uh, I don't see him winning a Grand Slam this year. Um, and uh, I, it, it will be uh, the French and the whole clay court season is really interesting. Uh, it's going to be really interesting as far as I'm concerned because with uh, with Roger winning three matches against Rafa, I think he will be really uh, looking forward to the clay season now. And I think initially when the year started, he was talking about maybe even skipping the clay court season or just playing the French Open and all that because uh, he frankly probably couldn't even see himself winning against Rafa over there. But now with his three wins, I think he would have that extra motivation to uh, get, really go for a run at the French Open. But uh, realistically speaking, I think uh, Stan uh, is probably, in my mind, uh, the favorite to win uh, the French Open this year. And uh, uh, with with uh, Wimbledon and you in the U.S. Open, if uh, Novak continues his decline and uh, Murray is not there, then Roger has a good shot at those two majors. I think as far as Novak's uh, sort of resurgence is concerned, uh, I, I, I feel that it will start in 2018. And um, I see him winning a couple of more slams uh, in uh, for, for the rest of his uh, career, uh, probably in uh, Australia or, uh, or the U.S. Open. But uh, again, um, I don't see him winning uh, more than uh, 14 uh, Grand Slams, maybe 15 uh, yeah, uh, so at, at the most. So you're saying there could be a three-way tie at uh, Mount 14 between Sampras, Nadal, and Djokovic, huh? Uh, I'll take that. Yeah, and I, I actually am calling it very differently. I think I think Novak is going to have it's going to take him one slam to get back in uh, the mix of things, and uh, I think he, he will get back to the top uh, top of the uh, totem pole again. Um, which means, in my mind, he's got at least three slams, if not four, um, and it, it's going to be very close. I think in the end between him and Roger. Uh, but uh, I'm with all of you that it, it's hard to see him get. I think it's a Classic case of loss of desire. Uh, once he discovers that, he, you know, and he can take a leaf out of Roger Federer's book, he can uh, definitely extend his winning days. But uh, first things first, right now, I think I would be very interested to see how he does against Kyrgios or even Zverev. But guys, consider the fact that uh, uh, after 2010, uh, when Federer was, what, 29, maybe? 28, 29? He won just two slams uh, after that. So... Novak is at that point in time. Do you guys really think that he has the capability of winning more than Roger uh, uh, at that age? Yeah, but consider also that Roger made those finals and he lost to this guy who was playing unreal tennis. And right. I, don't, I don't know if Novak is going to come up against someone like that because Kyrgios, as good as he is, I just don't know if he's a reliable enough talent where he's going to show up in these finals every time. 
things can change a lot in a couple of years and then you'll suddenly see a new player come up who would be incredible and then uh, the same thing happened with Novak, right? Right. So so let's talk about the one last player that we haven't brought up at all, which is Sir Andy Murray. Um, what's going on with this guy? I mean, he's clearly, we, we thought that he was, uh, you know, he was back, uh, he was going to use this downtime with Novak and, and actually take over the sport. Hasn't happened. Actually, he's, he's had a couple of really shabby results in hardcore slams. And now he's going into arguably his worst surface. Uh, what, what do you guys see for him? Can I go first? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Sakit. No, I just want to say, like, uh, sometimes we don't give Andy enough credit, like how he's become into a great clay court player. Of course, uh, all depends on uh, Nadal's level, which isn't there uh, where it was a few years ago. And I think Murray's right in the mix. I mean, the guy had shingles and uh, fine. He had, like, a, uh, one bad loss against uh, Misha Zverev. Indian Wells, traditionally, he plays bad. So, you know, Murray can easily chalk that out. But, yeah, he's definitely going through a slump and... Uh, but I'm not going to rule him out of the clay season because when I was there in Paris last year and watched him play a couple of matches, he's become a clay court beast. He's pretty much uh, just a, a mild version of Djokovic. He can outlast the best. He doesn't get tired. Ball by ball, the guy is there. So, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if Murray's holding uh, uh, that trophy in Philippe Chatry on the second Sunday of Roland Garros. Wow, that's a big call. Benny? So I, I so more than Djokovic for me, uh, Murray is the one who's probably going through a motivation crisis. Um, I mean, I think just being a little you know less talented version of Djokovic uh, already, he's you know he's looking behind the eight ball a little bit uh, in terms of chances of winning um, a major when when the others are you know when it's when Djokovic is around and playing well. So so for me, it's really about. You know, how much does he want it at this point? Um, yeah, and, and Usman, what's your uh, view on Andy? For me, Andy is uh, the ultimate void filler. So uh, whenever uh, Roger and Rafa and Djokovic are not there for whatever reason and Stan loses early, then uh, I think Murray has his chances. Otherwise, uh, I've, I've, I've always felt that he doesn't quite have uh, that extra something um, to, uh, to win it all. So uh, he can win another Grand Slam if that sort of, those sort of circumstances come up again, which they did uh, last year in Wimbledon. Uh, was it last year? It was last year, right? So uh, if that happens again, then he might win one more, but I don't really see it happening. Okay, so I think we've had a healthy discussion. I'd like to conclude here. Uh, February is content. And let's make a, you know, a bet and we can take it offline and keep track. Who will win more slams in the career, Murray or Vavrinka? Anand, you can go first. Oh, I, I, I think it's going to be Murray. I uh, just don't see Vavrinka winning another slam. Um, he, he is playing very well, uh, but he obviously, the whole thing behind Vavrinka, <laughs> I've never picked him for any slam because... He needs to run hot to go uh, go through the whole field. And it can happen once, it can happen twice. Lightning struck three times. I just don't see it happening again. What about you guys? I actually think I give Warinka an edge here. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think if any of, like, like Usman was saying, if any of these four are in the fold in a slam, um, Murray's chances are... Not, uh, you know, not as high. Guys, I'll interfere. I, I know this has to be civil, but I mean, 
there's no way Wawrinka is considered like the big four and Murray is not there. Come on, Murray is world number one. Wawrinka will never get there. No, no, but it's about playing great tennis for seven matches, right? And and yeah, having the talent. World number one is even harder. You have to play a calendar when Jok- on the watch of Djokovic. Fine, Wawrinka's uh, best is really scary and scary good stuff. He beats number ones in finals. Andy Murray is no slouch. I mean, you guys are making like when I can take it when Federer is not there or Djokovic is not there. And Murray's right up there with Wawrinka. Wawrinka will never win Master Series events like Murray. Wavrinka no, will never be asking about one. Grand Slams. I'm not no, but, talking about but, who's having the better career. This cannot be just dismantled. So, like, so I, I, I think so. The other thing is uh, Murray is in play in all four slams. I just don't see Wavrinka, for instance, winning Wimbledon. Um, and Murray is just a much better grass court player. Um, and and uh, to Sakip's point, in my view, Murray is capable of beating somebody like um, like Roger at, at a slam. I just... I think Wawrinka, as much as he is, to get to that point where he has to beat Roger, I think he might find himself in trouble before he gets there even, uh, more times than not. Uh, Murray has just been phenomenally consistent um, in getting to those semis and finals and giving himself that chance, and which is why I picked Murray over uh, Wawrinka. But, but I think if your point is fair, Wawrinka uh, has the ability to run through seven... No, Wawrinka is deadly, don't get me wrong, but my only point is we can't say Wawrinka is above Murray like in terms of, you know, as being a favorite. Yeah, Wawrinka comes out when no one, no one expects him. That's fine. He's made their reputation. You know, just surprise everyone or shock everyone. But Murray is a favorite. I mean, you know, I still think Murray has a couple slams in him. Right, <laughs> but, uh, but the question, I mean, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Murray is, is a more consistent performer, better grassroots player. He's in, definitely firmly in the big four. And and But but the question is, who can... Who could beat, uh, you know, a, a Djokovic or a Federer who's playing well in a Grand Slam unexpectedly? And Warinka has shown that ability, I think, as much or more. He has. And he's beaten all of the other three guys, uh, which, which obviously is uh, something you can put on his side of the board. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Usman? Wawrinka uh, uh, or Mari? Well, you guys know I've always been a Wawrinka fan and I've called... Uh him winning a couple of times at least i remember i called him winning the french open uh a couple uh, when a couple of years ago so i i firmly believe that uh he will end up with more slams than murray and um and to sakip's point i absolutely agree with the fact that murray is more consistent and he reaches the semi-final final stage more or stages more often but it's just the fact that uh stan, stan would either lose early or he, but if he goes all the way and he doesn't have to face Roger during uh, his sort of journey through a slam, then he has more chances of winning than Murray does in in a Grand Slam. So, so in the next two, three, four years, uh, uh, if he reaches a couple of grand, more three or four Grand Slam finals, then I see him winning uh, more more uh, frequently than Murray would. And for Stan, you also should add Curious to that list because he's. You won't be beating Kyrgios anytime, I think, in Islam. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think. Do you guys really think he got food poisoning, or he had a nice night out in uh, food poisoning? Come on, the guy's <laughs> pumped, man. He wanted to win, so yeah, yeah. So uh, hey, thanks, guys. I think we're, we're at the end of the podcast. Um, I, I think this is a great discussion, and we've all kind of looked into the crystal ball, and hopefully, we'll get to see over the coming years who who's more right than the other. Um, one thing to say is, Isman, you used a really good term in describing Murray. You called him a void filler. Right now, I'm really enjoying Roger Federer being the void filler. 
so let's let's hope that that streak continues as a Federer fan. But for those of you, uh, you know, whoever is following Rafa and the others, there's a lot to look forward to. I think this year. So this year is really fascinating uh, from a tennis fan viewpoint. So thanks again for joining both of you, and uh, we hope to do this again. Thanks Thank a you. lot, Alan. Thanks, Sakib. Great talking to you guys. Thanks, Usman. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right, thanks, guys.